Hello, this is Austin Art Talk, and I'm your host, artist and photographer, Scott David Gordon. Join me as I go in-depth to learn about artists local to Austin and beyond. We will dig into their origins and explore their paths and careers as artists, struggles and triumphs, setbacks and successes, and everything in between. I really love creating this podcast, and hopefully we can all figure out together how to better connect and support each other and our local art communities and create opportunities and abundance for ourselves through conversations like these and the ripples they create. This podcast is supported by people like you who find value in these talks and the work that goes into them and their production. Discover all the ways you can help keep this podcast going by visiting the support tab at austinarttalk.com. Consider sharing any episode that you love with someone you love and give a minute to leave a rating and review or feedback. And follow along on Instagram to stay up to date and share any ideas or questions or sign up with your email on the website. And keep in mind, no matter what you may be going through, you're not alone. That is why these conversations exist. Our shared humanity and experiences give us strength, hope, and a path forward. On to the heart of the show. John P. Weiss is a painter, writer, and cartoonist who for the last 10 years of his career before he retired early to pursue art was a police chief in Northern California. John's book, An Artful Life, Inspirational Stories and Essays for the Artist and Everyone, is what inspired me to reach out to him and have a conversation about being an artist and living an authentic and artful life. Be sure to check out the show notes to find links to all the books and artists that John references that we speak about in the interview. And one quick recommendation for all you podcast listeners, this is kind of a long interview, so what I always do is listen to podcasts at one and a half speed, and I actually am so used to it now, if I listen to something at normal speed, it sounds like it's in slow motion, so that could save you some time. Here is my sincere and wide-ranging interview with John P. Weiss. Please enjoy. Well, thanks, John, for being on my podcast. Thanks, Scott. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, You know, I found your book, I don't know, maybe it was within the last year, and I had it on my bookshelf, and with things kind of slowing down, I pulled it off, and I started reading a chapter every day. And it is truly an inspirational book. I mean, I really, the stories are really inspirational. They've really been helping me a lot right now. And, um, you know, when I started digging into more of your reading and writing and looking at your work and reading about your life, I've just been so impressed with, um, it just seems to me like you're, I don't know if you feel this way or if, how intentional it is. It just seems like your mission in life is to make the world a better place. And you're, you know, coalescing a lot of things that you're reading um, and you're into these articles and you're creating your cartoons and the quotes and everything. It just seems like such a wonderful thing to be doing. It must be very fulfilling for you. Well, thank you for that. Um, yes, you know, my background started in law enforcement, and the reason I was attracted to law enforcement was I really enjoyed helping people. Yeah. And I worked in a small town in Northern California, and um, it was a really intimate setting where you got to know everyone in the community. And so I got to interact, and I was able to help a lot of people. It was a very fulfilling career. Um, and I carried that over with my art. I was cartooning back then and uh, for the local newspapers and I loved entertaining people, and uh, and then it sort of morphed into writing, and I started writing, and yeah. um, now here I am today, uh, a full time writer and artist, and I get a lot of pleasure out of writing 
stories and illustrating them that touch people in some way positively. They give them hope. They give them a sense that, um, you know, that there's purpose to this life. And uh, I get some wonderful emails from readers. Yeah, I was just going to ask you if you ever get feedback, because I don't, I don't feel like I give people enough feedback, and I don't feel like I've received that much feedback. So I wonder, how, how much feedback do you get? I get quite a bit. Uh, in fact, so much so that it reminded me that I need to leave comments for other writers and artists that ah. I admire and enjoy. So I try to remember now to, to do that, to thank them for how they've touched me or inspired me in some way. Um, but I get uh, wonderful comments from readers uh, of my blog, both on Medium and on my website, and um, from all over the world. And that's the thing that's most remarkable to me is the touch of the Internet, that I have people in Turkey, people in India, people in England, people in Australia, um, yeah. uh, Japan. That, that, how did they find me? <laughs> right. I, you know, just, it's just amazing, <laughs> this, this world we live in now with the connectivity of the, of the Internet. So, and then the wonderful thing, they share stories with me about their own lives or how a story or article I wrote dovetailed into something they experienced. And sometimes mm. I, get, I get inspiration from my readers and it informs future articles. Yeah, sure. Yeah, that, something you said a minute ago reminded me of one of the articles that you wrote, you were writing, um, you had mentioned about writing people letters of encouragement. I think it was kind of dealing with the current situation and just yes. how you can reach out and share something with someone that might, you know, give them a little bright and brighten their day a little bit. Right, right. Well, you know, that that idea came from a, Gosh, I don't know if it was a Hallmark video or something I saw years ago, but yeah. it was something. I think it was called the Letter Writer, and it was this old guy who just wrote these uh, anonymous, random letters to people uh, and with encouragement. And, and I, I think he looked up their names in the phone book, and then he would oh, just wow. write a random letter to them. It was a fictional story, but it was touching because people would get these amazing letters, these beautifully, and they were beautifully handwritten. You know, which is something that you see less and less today. And it gave yeah. me the idea recently, too, that, you know, with some of the wonderful things I'm seeing in my community, people leaving little placards and note cards outside of our um, retirement communities and our assisted living center where my mother lives, um, these wonderful notes thanking the staff there and the, and the nurses and encouraging them. But I thought, well, why not write letters to, um, you know, some of the people in the retirement community just to get their names and write a letter and say, hi, my name's John, and I just want to encourage you and leave a cartoon. Yeah. It's little things like that go a long way in uplifting people. Yeah, it just makes that makes me think about just um, a way of intentionally living your life where you're what you're being more mindful. You're uh, have gratitude. You're, you know, I was just talking with an artist friend about this. It's like I feel like years can go by for me sometimes, and I feel like I was just reacting the whole time. I wasn't, you know, what were my goals? Have I achieved any goals? Was I intentional about anything? Was I paying attention to anyone else other than myself or whatever, you know, I just, um, you know, I wonder how you, have you always had that inclination to be mindful and be more thinking of others? I think some of that might've just been inborn in me from when I was young, because I can remember as a kid going, I lived in the hills of Los Gatos. It was a beautiful place. My dad was a judge and we had this house up in the hills and the view of Silicon Valley. And I used to go into the back end of the woods and climb up in the trees. And I'd sit up there sometimes for an hour or two and listen to the close my eyes. And I'd feel the sway of the breeze. And I'd watch the deer as they scampered by below. It was, it was talk about a sense of, of being in a sense of place and, and being alive. And, Mm. and 
I just, I had that experience as a little boy. And I think I was always tapped into that sense of being mindful. Um, mm. Not that I was successful at it. Like everybody else, you grow up and life gets hectic. And certainly yeah. during my, my police chief years, I didn't feel very mindful. I felt very right. reactive all the time. I go to bed yeah. every night on my phone, my iPhone had a hundred <laughs> emails and, you know, so I had, I had to work at it in, in adulthood a little bit more. But um, it's funny you mentioned mindfulness and intentionality because I, I just was watching on YouTube a short or documentary called The Monastery that they did in England. And they took like five or six guys from hundreds that applied and they got to spend 60 days in a monastery with Benedictine monks. Wow. And it chronicled their journey. I haven't watched it yet. I just started it. But I also ordered a book online, I think, that talks about this as well. Or it's wisdom from a Benedictine monk. And what it's about is we've lost this sense of intentionality, this sense of mindfulness. We're always reacting. We're never slowing down and taking in the world around us and listening to our thoughts a little bit more deeply. I think there's something very healthy in that. And it's hard for us to do because we live in such a fast-paced, frenetic life now. Yeah. Now it's a little slower um, unintentionally. I mean, we, no one expected this, this pandemic we're experiencing. Right. But it does give us pause. It gives us a chance maybe to um, reconnect with our thoughts and with where we're going in life and what we want to achieve and what's really important, um, which I think it's family and our passions. And yes, we all have to make a living. That's important. We have to pay the bills and, and have a place to live. Yeah. But, but beyond that, though, um, I don't think money alone is the answer. I, I think it's really about our health and our family and good friends and having meaningful things we enjoy doing. Yeah. Yeah, when you were talking about being up in a tree with the wind swaying and kind of just how things have been forced to slow down right now, it uh, makes me think of something that happened that was kind of a pretty powerful moment that I had the other day. Um, so I've been living out in the country uh, normally. I'm, most of my life I've lived in the city, but under the circumstances I'm living in the country right now. And I've never really experienced a sustained period of time living close to the ground in in and around nature, in and around the woods, going for walks every day, noticing new plants and animals and <laughs> bugs and birds and flowers and everything every day. And it's really, you know, I, I'm so grateful for the luxury to have this time because I know so many people are dealing with horrible situations and their lives have not slowed down at all and they're very stressful. So I'm very grateful for that. But Absolutely. I had this moment the other day and I'm just kind of, I'm kind of curious if you ever have these moments or if there's a way that we can, you know, intentionally have more of these moments. You know, I had this moment, I was sitting on the back porch and I just felt so at peace, so calm and so content. And, um, you know, I'm a big bird watcher and I was just like, oh, it'd be so great to see like a a bigger bird, like a hawk or some kind of a bird of prey closer up. And then all (laughs) of a sudden this hawk came down over the roof and flew right in front of me with its wings spread and it went and landed on a stump nearby for like 30 seconds and it took off no kidding and then all of a sudden there was like this flurry of activity all these other types of birds a bird i hadn't seen before out there um all this activity it's almost like i was so integrated with the environment in a way energetically that they Mm -hmm. they they weren't intimidated by me and it was just like i know this might sound kind of heavy but i just like i had this <clears throat> I had this moment where I just thought like I am so at peace and so content and so happy right now. I just had like this big smile on my face. I thought mm-hmm. if I died right now, I would have died happy. You know? <laughs> I mean, and I can't even remember the last time I had a feeling like that. You know, like I just yeah. do not think that 
in our modern lives of go, go, go and chasing this and that and wanting this and that and everything. I just don't, I don't imagine, at least I just say from my experience, I haven't had a lot of moments like that in my life. And I'm just wondering if you can relate to that or if you have moments like that. I mean, why wouldn't we want to try to achieve having a moment like that at least once a day or something? You know, it's just. Right, right. What a great story. You, you know what you said about, you were thinking about the hawk and then it appeared. My wife likes, my wife likes to say, we do not live in a coincidental universe. Um, yeah. And you can take that many ways, whether you're faithful or not faithful. It's just sometimes things happen and it's almost a spiritual moment. Uh, it, it's it's unbelievable. And you feel this overwhelming sense of peace. Yeah. I used to feel that in the woods. And I walk every day with my dogs. I go several times a day. I walk um, here in southern Nevada. And where we live is a beautiful area. And there are there are birds everywhere. And I just sent my wife a video yesterday of a mockingbird trying to attack me. I guess I walked oh, by wow. her nest. <laughs> You know, and we we have a we have a little verdon who visits every day in the backyard and goes to the hummingbird feeder. And then yeah, I saw have, the video you posted. Uh, that. Yeah, it's just amazing, you know. And uh, so I very much um, have slowed down and make sure that I make time to commune with nature. Um, you know, I don't go out in the boonies so much. Uh, I'm a little bit of a homebody right now with what's going on. Yeah, but um, but I really enjoy nature. I always did, though. Ever since I can remember, I've always loved animals, and I think growing up in the woods and being around deer and possums and 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 everything. You know, I, I've always loved animals. But I think the key is what you just said about you know you're out in the country right now. You're away from your normal busy life in the city. And you're not chasing down you know all your ambitions. You, you just have time to slow down. And I think that people can do that if they if they make an effort to, if they prioritize yeah. it more. Um, and I think there's a huge benefit to it because it seems to um, correct our, our equilibrium a little bit. You know, we slow down and we start to remember that, hey, you know, I'm living. There's more to life than just chasing the apple nugget. You know, you got to spend time with family. You got to get out and enjoy nature. Getting outdoors, it's the fresh air is so good for you. Yeah. You know? Yeah. No, I love it. Um, so... How would you describe yourself? You're a painter, you're a cartoonist, you're a writer. Is that kind of the main things you'd say? Yeah, I'm a little confused. As... I'm a little confused about what I am. I, I I struggle with this for a few years now. You know, I mean, for 26 Musician. years, I yeah, yeah, right, right, a Renaissance man, a jack of all trades, master of none. Yeah, um, I, I think pri- primarily, you know, I've always thought of myself as an artist um, because I since I was a kid, I was drawing. Uh, I was always draw. I had a sketchbook everywhere I went. I mean, a great oh, day wow. for me was was a, a, a sketchbook and just that I could draw on. Mm-hmm. And then early on, the drawing sort of morphed into a, a fascination and love of cartooning. Um, when I was uh, taking piano lessons from Irma Hinsenberg, my oh, piano yeah. teacher in Los Gatos, California. She was a refugee from Latvia after the Soviets invaded their country. She came to California. But my parents had me taking piano lessons with her, and she knew that I loved cartoons. And she used to cut editorial cartoons out of the newspaper for me, because we didn't get the newspaper where I was at. So I had all these wonderful cutouts of Jeff McNelly cartoons and Pat Olipan cartoons and all these cartoonists that I admired because of their fine line, beautiful um, drawings. Yeah. And, and so I grew up drawing a lot of cartoons, and uh, I, of course, I played the piano, too, and liked to sing. So I had a, a lot of creativity going around me. My dad was a weekend painter. Um, so he did beautiful oil paintings. My mom liked to do a little bit of painting, um, yeah. and she took piano lessons as well. So I kind of grew up, you know, we had a big library in our house. So I grew up around this creativity and artfulness. I um, mean, it just carried through even during my law enforcement years. I kind of took a practical route. My dad said, John, it's great you want to be an artist, 
but have something you know to fall back on. So I studied yeah. criminal justice in college and grad school and found a small police department that I loved in a beautiful town and became a cop there and worked my way up over the years. But I never lost that passion for art. I liked to write articles for the, for the local newspaper and started drawing cartoons for them. Yeah. Um, I would draw cartoons in the squad room and make fun of all the police and our antics and what happened in town, right. and, which brought a lot of levity to a serious job at times. Um, and then midway through my career, I started taking up an interest in painting because I couldn't draw cartoons anymore. People got to know me in the local um, county as, oh, he's that sergeant who's drawing cartoons for the, for the newspapers. And they were political cartoons. So if you didn't agree with my view, then they get upset. They call the police department and, you know, start oh, calling the newspaper. <laughs> and my chief at the time said, John, you know, you ought to be a cartoonist or a cop. You can't be both. So, wow. so then I thought, well, I'll become a painter. So I, I started studying painting. I found this artist, Scott L. Christensen in Idaho, who I just loved his landscapes. He's a master. And I took a workshop with him. And then I came back and took an advanced workshop. And then I got to know him. And he thought I was a novelty because he had mostly artists to take in his right. classes. He didn't have any, you know, cops. And here's yeah. this, this, this young police chief who's in, you know, in his class and probably bringing up the rear. I had people in there that, that you know, did illustration work for uh, DreamWorks and all. I mean, really great artists. Oh, and, wow. You know, and I'm just getting, getting my, 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 my brushes wet. But I ended up building a rapport with him. And then he invited me back to a salon, me and just one other artist for a week in his studio um, in the winter, it was it was a magical thing. You know, we got wow. to spend we're looking at artwork every day and photographs. And then he would do studies, and we'd watch him, and we'd go out and paint. And so um, I started painting, and I fell in love with painting. And uh, and then after I retired, I started cartooning again. Then I started yeah. writing online a lot more, and the writing took off. In fact, my painting has suffered lately because I've done so much writing and illustrating that I'm trying to dive back into doing more painting now and getting that back. So, so I don't know what I am. I guess I'm a, I'm a, I tell people I'm a full-time writer and artist. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I wonder, though, um, you know, um, I had mentioned my uh, cousin is a police officer in Florida, and he was talking about how much he has to write. I wonder if yeah. that contributed to your writing, just having to write probably thousands of reports over your police you know, career. I don't know. I don't think that the police report writing had much to do with it. Okay. Because police report writing is very expository. I mean, it's just, you know, who, what, when, where, what happened. It's very specific. I think I did yeah. learn, I'd learned from it. I learned specificity. I learned brevity. I learned to really, to, to very carefully describe things because they mattered in court. You know, if you're describing in a police report how something happened or what somebody said, it, it, it matters that you get it yeah. right. Especially when you're looking at people that are being accused of a crime, you have to get it right because uh, you're yeah. going to be cross-examined. And so I did learn how to be very precise there's no question. I learned a lot of things from police records. Probably spent an hour talking about how it has informed my writing in oh, terms wow. of how uh, my experiences taught me a great deal about humanity and people. Sure. But in terms of writing, I think more it's been reading broadly has helped me a great deal. And just lo love of good prose, you know, and, and learning brevity. Uh, I hired a copywriter a few years back. Uh, uh, Damien Farnworth, he used to work for Copyblogger, and he taught me a lot about copywriting. Because mm. writing online is different than writing for, say, a long-form for a magazine or writing a book. Um, it's just it's just a different form of writing. People are impatient online. They don't want to have long chunks of text to have to read. You have to shorten down your paragraphs. Your, your titles are very important. People won't even read the article unless it has a compelling title. So you're constantly balancing between writing a compelling title but not going all the way into like clickbait. Um, so it's a different kind of writing. But I learned a lot from from uh, uh, other people and from reading, and that's informed my writing. Yeah, I can all the things you're talking about 
how you write. Uh, I see those in your writing. I oh. see the titles. I see how it's broken up by quotes and sure. uh, cartoons sometimes or photos. Right. And uh, I do, I, I have enjoyed that very much. It is, you know, I see how some of the stories in your book, An Artful Life, have ended up online and they're more kind of expanded with the cartoons and everything. Right. I really I've repurposed some of those articles because um, I wrote the book a few years back uh, and I've, I've put some I've online to share them with a broader audience because the audience was, was smaller back then. Um, but it's funny thing you, you mentioned that the book, because the stories in that book, I was just starting to write online and I was writing on my blog. And in some respects, I felt I had more freedom because mm. I didn't have much of an audience. And I was writing stories that just came to me that were really poignant. Some of them were poignant and, and a lot of motion in them. And I felt that that was some of my best writing. And what I found as I've written for a larger audience on websites like Medium is that I'm a little more constrained by the format. Yeah. Um, there's another writer named Zat Reina, Z-A-T-R-A-N-A, that writes beautiful articles. He's, he's a polymath and he, he reads deeply. He's a really bright, bright guy. And he just moved away a little bit from Medium because he felt that he has to write a certain way on Medium online in order to um, keep an audience because uh, the kind of writing he's doing is almost academic and hmm. um, writing sometimes online, people have a shorter attention span. They want a quick, a quick story, a quick message. Um, so anyway, I just felt that when I early in the early days, I, I could write a little more true to what my heart told me. And now I'm trying to find a way to strike that balance where I can still write some more poignant articles and stories that, that will still appeal to readers on a broader scale. Yeah. You know, one thing, um, I was kind of wondering, I was as I was reading your book, is like how, you know, some of the stories seem autobiographical. Some of them are about other people. Like, is it like what part of it is based on something that actually happened to you or people that you knew, and what part of it is actually just something that you created? So if you don't mind sharing. Sure. Some of the stories are autobiographical. Sometimes I've changed the names. Um, there's a gentleman I mentioned in one story called Ted Strollo. And uh, that, that story is a true story. I, I talk about it in the story and how my father met him. He was hit by a car in Los Gatos, California. My dad yeah. witnessed it. And he, he came to his aid, went to the hospital. He was a homeless man who lived in the woods in the hills of Los Gatos. And quite a character. He was an emigre from Italy. He was a master wood carvesman. Um, and he lived alone in the woods. He made his own coffee with acorns, acorn coffee. Um, and my dad sort of helped him out. He was an older gentleman, no real family. And my dad being an attorney and a judge, he, he understood how to get him help. He got him some, some assistance. He was able to get him a a low income apartment, uh, in town and, and befriended him. In fact, my family, my, my father and mother nursed him back to health when he got out of the hospital. He stayed at our house. My dad was just, I write about my dad a lot too, as far as autobiographical. He's a a frequent um, um, character in my my work because he influenced me so much. He's such a good man, such a moral, ethical man. But we helped this man, Ted Strollo. I wrote about him. Um, Some of the other stories are completely fictional. Uh, Sometimes I, being a cop, I would escape sometimes into music or watch music videos at night and write. I wrote one story called The Flower Thief. And it's this old gentleman who collects and steals flowers around town to bring to his wife who has dementia in a dementia clinic and he likes to bring him into her room and in the town they're trying to figure out who's stealing all their flowers right. and um, so that story was what the German what germinated the idea for that story was of all things a, uh, a country music video 
with, with, I forget the artist, I think it was Travis Tritter, one of these people, but it was a video with this guy who was going around cutting flowers. And, and he ends up uh, bringing him into this, this hospital room for this woman, and there's flowers everywhere in the room. And I just got an idea for, you know, for, to write a story yeah. about that. Another time I was watching an Adele video, Hello, which has like a billion you know, views. And in yeah. that video, there's one scene where there's this phone booth in the woods. It's beautifully done. The whole film. Oh, yeah. Is, I love that story. Yeah. It's a beautiful um, a video, though, too. It's shot like in a sepia, black and white tone. And I love the simplicity of black and white. And, but I got the idea for what would you do if you found a phone booth in the woods? And what would you do if you picked it up and it worked, but it called people back in time? Yeah. And that was what came up my idea for the, the, the story I wrote, The Phone Booth in the Woods where I end up finding this phone booth and calling my father and talking, I mean, just going back in time. So sometimes they're autobiographical stories. Sometimes they're, they're inspired by videos or stories I've read. Honestly, sometimes I don't know where they came from. They just popped into my head and I went with it and crafted a story. And other stories in my book are, are not um, stories. They're actual articles on, on you know, how to improve your art or how right. to market your art better. So it's kind of a mixture. Yeah, yeah. No, yeah, I, I, I was actually wondering because... Some of the things that you might in a story attribute as a quote to someone else, like the story about Alphonse Delgado, like the, right. the quote that he writes on the note on the back of the painting, I, I just, I, I have it here and I was just think it's so beautiful. But oh, you thanks. wrote that. There, there is no Alphonse Delgado, is there? No, or, he's just, I just made him up. If you don't mind, um, I'm going to read a few sentences of his note because I just thought, you know, I, this podcast is mostly listened to by artists. And I just thought it was such a beautiful message. Um, sure. Artwork and creative expression are gifts we give ourselves, the ones we love, and others. We might dream of artistic fame and recognition, but this is not the purpose of art. The purpose of art is to touch others, to inspire, move, instigate thought, and remind all that the true measure of a life is love, authenticity, and meaningful contribution. Do not burden yourself with regrets, unfulfilled dreams, and sadness. If you have loved truly, if you have improved the lives of others, if you have raised well-adjusted children, then you have lived a worthwhile life. Your artistic expression, whether widely recognized or obscure, reflects your deepest humanity and spirit. That is enough. It sounds like what you live by, pretty much. Well... I, I try. I talk to From my wife. <laughs> my wife will, will tell you of all my flaws. I'm sure you know we all have uh, them. But yeah. but no, it's it's it's. I do. I I, uh, I feel very blessed that I'm at a point in my life where I can do this full time, where I can write and create. Um, it was harder when during the working years when we were raising my son and I was busy in the police department. Um, but I do try to live my life by that. I try to live my life by that when I was in law enforcement too. And I tried to share that message with um, the staff that I work with, a bunch of great people. But I yeah. told them that, you know, uh, in our town, in Scotts Valley, where I work, that you need to treat everybody with basic human dignity, especially those people that are on the margins of society, the people that are struggling, whether it's with addictions or family problems. You know, some of us are blessed to have been raised in wonderful homes with good parents. Other people were not so lucky. Some had very difficult backgrounds. And we talked about that in our squad rooms and, you know, and, and work, and, and we tried to live by that in the police department. Um, that's something that I've tried to carry into my artwork is to, to live by that. I think art is so important. Um, and I think a lot of artists get discouraged, particularly right now when, you know, art galleries are closed. Everyone is hunkered down at home. And uh, there's a lot of people that are probably thinking, gosh, how am I ever going to go anywhere with my artwork? And the yeah. first thing you have to remember is, 
is that you're, you have to do your artwork for you first. Um, that's my feeling. That's, right. you know, it's, I've been tempted. I, I've been lured before by trying to create work, whether it's writing or artwork that I think will be more marketable. I've gone down that dark hole a few times, I'm ashamed to admit, where I think, gosh, you know, if I write this way, I'll get more readers and more subscribers. Or if I do this kind of artwork, if I do more colorful artwork, it sells better. Just vibrant artwork tends to sell better than tonalist artwork, which is more what I'm drawn to. Yeah. But that's not me. That, that's, it's, I'm not being honest to, to who I really am. So I think as an artist, you have to start with um, being authentic, being true to what, what speaks to you. What is your art? What is it you want to say? And do you get excited by your artwork? Does it, does it, you, when you finish, you, gosh, yes, I, I, I'm happy with this. I may never be entirely happy. I keep striving to do better. Right. But I like the direction I'm on. I like this look. I like the way this sounds or the way this music is or this poetry is when I'm really striking a chord I want to strike. And I think that if you really do great work and if it's authentic and you keep sharpening the saw, as that author used to say from Seven Habits, um, if you keep trying Stephen to make Covey. it, thank you. Yeah. If you keep trying to make it better and better. Um, then I think, you know, you, you'll find an audience. There'll be people who will also, your work will resonate with others. And it may be a smaller audience, but isn't that what you want? You want people to get what you're doing instead of trying to do something that's derivative and it's not really you. Yeah, that kind of reminds me of the article you wrote about being uh, rare and valuable. Yeah. And we were talking about the one thing and, and work on skills instead of social media. Right. Right. Uh, can you elaborate on that, the whole idea of rare and valuable? You know, I was looking for the book up here. Uh, maybe I moved it to another room. I'm trying to remember the, the author. Um, there is a oh, blogger. Yeah. There's a blogger who wrote, he wrote, oh, Cal Newport. He wrote um, Deep Work, right. uh, which was a great, great book about really focusing and, and not letting uh, digital chatter and a million other things get in the way of what's really important. Um, I think it was him where I got the idea of rare and valuable. I think um, I borrowed it from him because he talked about that in another blog post about how if you want to separate yourself from everybody else, then you really need to work on creating work that's rare and valuable. You know, in my world of art, I look at a lot of art websites and a lot of painters and what I see is sometimes a lot of commonality. I see a lot of artists that are copying a lot of other artists, which we all do when we start out. We're all trying to emulate our heroes. It takes time to develop your voice. Um, it takes time to develop your skills. And, you know, you can get to a certain level where maybe you're a photorealist and, wow, you do some really amazing work, but you look just like uh, Daniel Sprick's work. Um, or maybe you're, uh, you're a really loose painter, but you spent too much time copying Carolyn Anderson's loose paintings, and so now your work looks like hers. Or even me, having been influenced greatly by Scott Christensen, right. I realized that you know, there's only one Scott Christensen. God bless him. Right. You know, I, I can't, I can't be Scott Christensen. Um, even if I uh, achieved his level of uh, execution, if it looks like Scott Christensen's work, then I'm, I'm obviously I'm aping his style. I need to move beyond that. And I think rare and valuable means the the the, the rare part is you have to develop skills that are that are rare, um, not just common. And the reason that um, you know some of the top um, um, co- coders in the country that do amazing work with AI intelligence and all that are get paid so much is because not many people can do what they're doing. A lot of people can, um, you know, maybe um, do other jobs that don't require as deep a level of skills, but right. they pay more because what they have is very rare. Just like the brain surgeon, they make a lot of money because that's a rare skill. But more important than, than the money thing, though, is, is valuable. If it's valuable, if it's truly authentic, that makes it really unique. And I think that if you can do work that's rare, you have a high level of skill, but also is valuable. It's very authentic. It's it's something that you don't see every day. 
that's a winning ticket. And that's going to get a lot of attention. It tends to. Um, sometimes not in your lifetime. There's some artists, you know, Van Gogh d- d- didn't get a lot. I mean, people didn't appreciate his yeah. work during his lifetime, but it was rare and valuable, very unique um, when we look back on it now. Claude Monet, um, wow. You know, when he first started going really colorful and becoming impressionist versus the more classical style, that initially was, um, you know, not, not as appreciated. It took time for people to really appreciate how rare and valuable that new approach was. Yeah. Um, just to elaborate that on that, though, you know, from that same article, the points that I really, you know, thought were interesting were how you were, and this kind of speaks to, I think, your approach to your life is how you're, it seems like you're constantly trying to learn and read and you're seeking out mentors and people to study with. Um, and, you know, you were talking about how, you know, working working on your skills instead of working on your social media. It's like you're kind of doing it backwards. You're trying to create this buzz about yourself on social media and this presence. But are you doing the hard work that that backs it up? Or maybe you should actually be just focusing on doing the hard work first, and then organically, people will notice you, you know? Yeah, right. Well, you know, we all want um, encouragement and positive feedback. And so the insidious part of, there's a good part to it, is social media, but the insidious part is it does tend to push us to try to be liked and to get more views. And, yeah. and you see people doing the darndest things online to get more attention from zany you know, videos to crazy stuff or artists. And what they forget is, you know, is it rare and valuable, right? I mean, I mean, there's a million other people doing the same thing. You know, it's, it's you can do outrageous artwork and people may go, that's different. That's kind of weird. But is it really you or are you just trying to get attention? Um, what yeah. I've been wrestling with a little bit lately is, you know, I developed a bit of a following from my writing online because I had a unique combination. I was writing for a while and I had a bit of an, a little small audience. It was great. I was very thankful that people were interested in my writing. But I was just using stock photos from uh, um, different sites, um, like Unsplash. And then I realized everyone else is using Unsplash for their stock photos and their articles. And I looked like everybody else's articles. And I thought, why not start combining my style of cartoons with my articles? Because yeah. I draw kind of old school editorial style, sketchy cartoons. Um, and when I started doing that, it really separated me online and people started following me quite a bit. And, and it's funny how articles I'd written before that I simply repurposed, put the cartoons with, suddenly were getting attention. So I realized yeah. that, you know, that was kind of rare and viable, something different than what everyone else is doing. And it was also authentic because I love drawing the cartoons and, and it worked with my writing. Um, but what I found was is that um, of late, I've been going back to slowing down a bit with social media. I've been spending more time during this, this quarantine time um, studying I, I've taken several courses. I took a charcoal, charcoal course online. I just finished mm. a uh, um, figure course because my background was more landscape painting. And I hadn't really studied in-depth figure. And I realized that that was a shortcoming of mine. Um, I can cartoon figures all day long. But as far as drawing a beautiful um, drawing, it's a little more work for me. So now I'm doing the really hard work of studying anatomy and doing um, uh, tutorials online. And it's, you know... Some of it's boring. It's not easy. It's hard mm. work. Um, but I'm realizing that I want to do some other kinds of painting now besides just the landscape. I'd like to incorporate figure. There's an artist yeah. I follow who I really love his work. His name is Jeremy Mann, M-A-N-N. And he has mm-hmm. a website called, um, called redrabbit7.com. But his name is Jeremy Mann, and he does these gorgeous city landscapes. He does these amazing figures. 
he he hires these models and he takes old like photographs with of them, but he uses these old homemade cameras. He likes old yeah. school analog cameras. Uh, if you ever get a chance, go to his website and look at his photo, photography work. But I, went, I drove all the way down to New Mexico last, last year um, uh, to one of his openings to see his artwork and uh, was blown away by, the, by the, the quality and the depth of his art. It's very unique. And he takes these photographs and they have light leaks and all kinds of flaws in them of these women that he, that, that he costumes for these beautiful paintings he does. And then he paints those images and they're, they're gorgeous and they're unique. And he had like almost 200,000 followers on Instagram. And you know mm. what he did last year? He dumped all social media. He put out a statement. He said, you know what? I need to go deeper with my art and I'm tired of trying to you know, put out Instagram and all this stuff. And he stopped posting. And he says, if you want to see my artwork, go to my website. And that's what he did. And yeah. now there's galleries that still that took taken over his Instagram account and they still post his images, but he's not doing it anymore because he felt that it was distracting him and getting him away from deepening his art and making his art better. It's kind of counterintuitive because most artists yeah. know that you need to have you need to get known if you're selling your work. You need, you want to market your work. It's important to get it out there. And you know, he already had a hundred couple hundred thousand followers. So for him, obviously, he has a luxury of leaving, and he'll still have followers. Right. But I thought that was interesting that he was so worried about authenticity and going deeper with his work. He also does videos and other things as well, puppets. I mean, the guy is all over the place with his creativity. But mm. I kind of admired that, and I thought, yeah, you know, I got to make sure that I'm doing work that that really pleases me. And for even lately, for a while, I've been trying to reevaluate what I've been writing on Medium because some of the articles are kind of self-help, personal development articles. Yeah. They're popular. But I'm not writing as much of the poignant stories I used to write. And those resonate more with people when I write them. And so I'm trying to strike a balance. I think for your listeners, there's a lesson in this too, which is don't lose your authenticity. Um, keep honing your skills to become a better artist. Don't just copy what someone else is doing. Go beyond it. You know, Find what really speaks to you in your soul as an artist and start doing that. But then don't buy into your own BS too. If, if you don't know how to draw a figure very well and you don't know why people aren't excited about those really – abstract figure paintings you're doing, well, maybe you need to get better at drawing figure so that you can improve your work. Jeremy Mann had a background in um, uh, fine art and all the art schools he went to at the time were teaching kind of modern art and he didn't know much about um, how to do figure. So he finally had, I think, go to an atelier and learn more about figure. But he says what he made his art unique was he had the, the, the fine art sort of um, modern abstract style down then he yeah. learned the traditional figure, and now he's fusing the two, and it's so exciting what he's come up with. It's unique. It's mm. different. It's one of a kind. Um, so I think that's some, there's a lesson in that for artists. Yeah, it definitely sounds like the artist you've been talking about. Uh, it would take a lot of, yeah, what I don't know, courage and integrity to make that kind of a move with your career to like, it's all in service of the work, really. It really is. And I think you can strike a balance. I mean, I'm pragmatic. I realize that uh, it's important to have your, your work online. That's how I found Jeremy Mann was Instagram. Never would have known about the guy if it wasn't for Instagram. Yeah. So I think that there's a place for um, putting your work out there. But I wouldn't let your digital life dictate your artist's life. I think that the work is, comes first. And, and then the, the, the social media and your website is is a place to share what you're working on. And, and uh, But it's not... The purpose of your work, the purpose of your work is, is your artwork, is what you're doing. It's your explorations, it's your breakthroughs, um, and, and, then, and then sharing it with people online to build that audience. 
Yeah, I, I really have no doubt that I probably spend more time every day on social media than I do creating any kind of artwork or photography. <laughs> I can almost guarantee it. And think where your work would be, Scott, if you flipped that model. And if you put the majority of the time into deepening your creative skills and deepening your um, your voice and what you want to say as an artist. And then, because really, if you think about it, you can schedule three times a day, morning, afternoon, and lunch without ever going on your phone. You can go on your computer and you can upload the latest image or whatever you're working on on your social media. And you're done. And then you can get off of that scrolling all day long and all the rabbit holes you go down with 20 other interviews and artists and podcasts. And they're all wonderful. But, you know, it's like discipline yourself with your time. I'm trying to be better at that. I mean, I have to practice what I preach, but I'm trying to... Put away the phone. I even looked at getting one of these, you know, like the light phone too, or a palm, all these tiny little phones that, that kind of yeah. prevent you from getting on your phone. <laughs> yeah. you know? But I thought, a well, flip phone. Right. A flip phone. <laughs> I know a guy who still has a flip phone and we, yeah. tease, we tease him all the time. But, you know, then again, I like GPS. I like getting my text messages and know what's going on with my wife. But sure. you can discipline yourself in your schedule. And maybe this is a good opportunity for your listeners, for all of us during this quarantine to look, we're at home. You know, let's put more time into our, our creative work and let's, you know, reward yourself maybe in the evening when you're done with your creative work for the day. Then, yes, yeah, sit on the couch and get out your laptop or your phone and, you know, go down those rabbit holes and catch up on you with your favorite artists. But manage it more. I think Cal Newport talked about that in Deep Work. Manage your digital life more. Take a 30-day detox, you know. Spend mm-hmm. all your time doing your artwork, um, you know. And it, it, that's that's the thing, you know. That's... What would you do if there was no social media anymore? What would you put put your time into? You know, I know for yeah. me, I'd still be I'd still be drawing and painting. Maybe my artwork would be even better because I spend less time trying to put it out there or you know, getting distracted with online stuff. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think discipline is huge, and I've really been personally trying to work on more discipline in my life because I think you know, taking a phrase from uh, someone that I follow a little bit. I don't know if you know Jocko Willink at all. Um, huh. He's an ex-Navy SEAL. I oh, think Jocko. Really like yes, him. Jocko. Yeah, yeah, I know exactly who he is. Yep, yep. Yeah, discipline equals freedom. You know, he talks right. about that all the time. And he's it's, right. And, it, and he's very hardcore about it, but um, I do feel like the more disciplined and intentional you can be with your life and even your, like, daily routine, that does lead to more freedom and possibility and potential. Absolutely. There's no question about it. Being a, growing up, I was uh, probably undisciplined, typical free spirited teenager. Loved to play tennis and run around and you know draw, and and I wasn't as focused on my academics as probably a BC student in high school. And my dad, you know, much to his chagrin, he you know he was an, uh, an intellectual, and John, you need to read more like your sister, and you know, yeah. and so discipline took time for me, and I was so thankful in a way that uh, I I ended up going into law enforcement because. I learned discipline from a police academy, from, mm. from having to uh, learn how to work schedules, uh, how to deal with people, how to be more patient. Um, and my mentors in the police department, the, the sergeants and, and, and leaders that, that helped me grow as a person, I learned a great deal about discipline and from my father. You know, I mean, he taught me to make my bed every morning, first thing, you know, like that admiral yeah. who gave that speech, but, you know, wrote the book about the first your bed. win of the day. Yeah. Right. And it, but it, <laughs> There's so much truth to that, that discipline is, is everything. And it's so hard. But, you know, once you do it, you feel so good. 
it, it's amazing. I, mean, I changed my life uh, over the last several years. A lot of habits that I changed. I, mm. I completely cut alcohol out of my life. I used to love wine at night and beer, but sometimes I had a faulty off switch. I'd have one glass that's have three, you know? And yeah, next thing you yeah. know, I've blown the whole evening, you know, and I could have been productive. And then one day I just made a decision, you know what, I'm, I'm going to cut that out of my life. It's better for my digestion. And, and wow, you know, that one little habit change was huge for me. So now what mm. happened? A lot of friends stop calling in the evening because, oh, yeah, John's not going to come to our wine party because yeah, he doesn't drink anymore. And, you know, so my evenings, all of a sudden I'm painting. Uh, all of a sudden yeah. I'm, I'm finishing those books that were stacking up from my last bender at the bookstore. Um, you know, all of a sudden I'm, I'm focusing on other things like how often I'm exercising and what I'm eating. And, um, you know, I switched to decaf coffee. I occasionally have a cup of caffeinated, but just found that that works better for me. Um, discipline. I had to discipline myself to do these changes. Uh, now that I'm home and I can't go to the gym, I'm trying to discipline myself how to work out differently. I can't order yeah. weights because there's no weights to order online because everyone right. bought them all and the shipping. <laughs> so I'm online learning how to do like reverse push-ups so I can work biceps and have triceps with, with my bathtub. And I'm, and I'm morphing yeah. into this, this workout at home and I'm realizing, you know, I didn't really need to go to the gym. I have everything I need right here. I just wasn't yeah. disciplined enough to do it. There's a ritual with going to the gym. Oh, I am going to the gym. You know, I'm going to talk to six people for an hour and work out for 20 minutes. And yeah. so now I'm I mean, actually, you, yeah, the accountability, the accountability helps. And you did mention in one of your stories about having a trainer. I think that can absolutely depend, I, it depends. I'm forced into it because of the current situation. Um, but my, I guess my message is, yeah, you're right. Discipline is the key. You know, it's, it's, and, and accountability is huge. And I think, like I said, you can split the difference. You can have accountability online. You can have mentors online that you can talk to that, that help you. And, I, I'm all for that is, is for finding things that move you forward and help you be the better person you want to be. Yeah, yeah. I'm wondering, um, you know, one of the big struggles I think a lot of people have around being an artist is having a day job. You know, how do I balance that? And yeah. um, I mean, do you still feel like your dad was right to for, to say for you to have to go into like a, a law enforcement or have a regular job? Because I mean... Where, do you ever think about where you'd be if you had just been an artist the whole time? Like, oh you, yeah, you know. There, and and you know, Scott, there are times that I think to myself that, gosh, you know, what if I had just followed my passion when I was when I was young? You know, I'd be so much further along now with my. Yeah, you know, I feel like I'm 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 55, and now I'm still feel like I'm playing catch up on you know where I want to be as an artist. You know, I look at the the painters that I admire, the Jeremy Lipkings of the world, and. And the Scott, you know, Scott Christiansons and, and, and these amazing painters that have such amazing skill. You know, what if I'd gone to an atelier and learned these skills early on? Where would I be now, you know? But on the other hand, um, I remind myself that broad experiences inform who we are and, and how we develop as an artist. Because I'm also a writer. And if I'd been doing art the full time, I wouldn't have had all these stories, amazing mm. stories and experiences that I, that I was fortunate to experience in my police career. I mean, I, from sheer terror to moments of just sheer beauty and everything in between, from seeing yeah. death up close and personal at car accidents and having to do death notifications and tell someone that their loved one is gone. You, you never forget that. You just never forget that. Mm. And, and that has shaped who I am today and the sensitivities that I have and the appreciation I have for beauty and people and the good things in life. I, I think I probably would have had a lot of those same feelings as if I'd been an artist all the time, but I, I don't know. 
Yeah, I just don't know. I feel thankful yeah. that I had my police career because I was able to retire at 52 years old with a good pension, the medical benefits, and dive into artwork full time now without the, the, the stress of having to worry about making a living from it. I have the freedom and the luxury to do the artwork that I want to do instead of what the gallery says is selling or what social media says is more popular. So yeah. I feel very blessed by that. I don't tell people, though, that you shouldn't follow your passion. If you want to be a full-time artist, be a full-time artist, but be realistic about it. Um, but I tell people, too, your question about juggling you know, a career maybe in your passion, because let's face it, probably most artists have to do something to pay the bills while they're developing as an artist. Right. And so I've written about this before. I called it pragmatic juggling. Uh, mm. It's learning how to manage your time wisely so you can maximize your time away from work to pursue your art. And this can be very difficult. You may be in a season in your life, if you're a single mother, where you're working two jobs and taking care of the kids. And yeah, who has time for the poetry that she really loves? Um, it may be a couple hours at night. I dated a woman years ago um, before I got married who was a, a, a novelist. And um, she went through a divorce and she had a young boy who had um, some special needs. And um, she had to work full time and take care of her kid. But you know what she did? She spent every night from like, nine o'clock till about midnight writing on her laptop. And then when she finally had some time off from work, she went to a writer's workshop and had her mom take care of her son. She whittled away. She was a pragmatic uh, juggler. She juggled her time. She said no to things that were not as important. She put her kid first. She did her work. And then she focused on her writing. She became a successful novelist. And she has mm. several, several novels um, um, and did very well and um, remarried and moved on with her life and uh, really remarkable. Because she was so good about disciplining herself to make time for her writing. So I think if you're a writer, if you're a musician, if you're a poet, if you're a painter, um, yeah, maybe you're not crazy about your daytime job right now or your evening job, whatever it may be. But, you know, say no to uh, unnecessary commitments. And we, we hate to say no. I had a hard time saying no to people because I'm a nice guy. I, I say yes. But I finally walked away from the Rotary Club I was in for years because I realized that it was just cutting into my time on the weekends too much for my art. And I never would move forward if I didn't do that. Yeah. And so, yeah, you've got to make those hard choices. You've got to say no to things that are not important. Put your family first. They, they are the most important. Make the income you need to make. And then say no to as many things that are unessential, inessential as possible so that you can focus on your art. And you'll keep growing. And there'll come a time when things will change. Like for me, I used to fantasize about being a full-time writer and artist. Well, now I'm a full-time writer and artist. It's pretty cool. But you know yeah. what? I, I mean, I, I love it. It's, I, I, gosh, I, yeah, I would have loved to have done it my whole career. But, you know, then I would have missed out on all those experiences and things I had in my law enforcement career. And sometimes the, you learn the darndest things from maybe you have a janitorial job in the evenings to make ends meet. But you know what? You meet the most amazing people. You, you see the most interesting things. My dad used to tell me, you know, talk to the janitor in your building at night because they have secrets that, you know, other people don't, <laughs> don't know. And it's true. I met a guy, in our janitor in our police department I used to talk to and his son had been in the gang and was shot and killed. And he told me what that was like to have that kind of mm. just tremendous loss. And he told me what his son's life was like and how it happened and what he does now and what brings in passion and his faith. And what an interesting man he was. Because, you know, I took the time to talk to him and learn about who he was. And he told me things about the police department I didn't know. Did you know that your guys do this? And this happens upstairs in City Hall. And, you know, it was, it was amazing. So, it's, yeah. <laughs> so you, know, you, you learn a lot. You know what that makes me think of just talking to the janitor is like um, kind of connected to the just sending out words of encouragement to people. It's like kind of just like giving everyone the benefit of the doubt 
or just assuming that everyone has their own struggle. You know, it's so easy to be dismissive of someone or get mad at them over something trivial or not talk to someone. I mean, I feel like it's so hard for us even just to kind of have conversations with strangers or random people like we have fear or whatever it is, we don't want to be judged or we don't want to be bothered or we don't want to get sucked into a conversation or whatever. But I just feel like everyone has a story. Everyone has things they've been through. Even if they're a jerk, you know, it's like they, they're struggling with something. It's like everyone deserves the benefit of the doubt. Everyone deserves compassion. Everyone deserves to be connected with, you know, what what a wonderful truth. You know, we, we all, we have more that, that connects us and separates us. We, we all want to have a good life. We want to be loved. We want to do meaningful work. We want to be recognized for the things that we do. I mean, if this is not, uh, you know, rocket science. This, this, is, this is something that all people want to have in all cultures. Um, and we get so blinded sometimes by our own tribes or our own politics or our own yeah. views. And we forget to see that humanity. Now, that doesn't mean we should let people take advantage of us. And we have to protect ourselves from people that would do us wrong. But gosh, there is, there is so much beauty in people if we slow down and take the time to listen. You know, I, we mentioned earlier that, I think I mentioned earlier that, that, that series, The Monastery, and I ordered the book, and mm-hmm. I'm, I'm looking forward to getting this book because that was one of the things that this Benedictine monk talked about was learning to listen, just mm. to listen. Whether you're outside on a walk, listening to the birds, um, let that feed your soul, but also learning to listen to people more. Something I'm very bad at. I'm trying to get better at. I, I've, I've, you know, I'm half Irish, so you know, I've got that talker side in me. I yeah. can talk about all kinds of things that interest me. But every time I've shut up and listened, wow. You know, the other day um, I was sitting in the, the hot tub with my wife. She's a nurse, and um, I sat there and it was just very quiet. I was listening to the birds. It was at nighttime. We we're sitting in the hot tub, and she mentioned something about her work, and I said, "Really? You know, tell me more." And she started just talking. And because I was relaxed, I wasn't busy chattering about what I worked on that day or, or taking yeah. the lead. It was wonderful. I mean, she told me all these little insights into, you know, this gentleman that she takes care of who's on a respirator and the relationship they have and his insights into the world from, you know, being paralyzed in a wheelchair with a respirator and, mm. and their conversations and the laugh. And he's a, her patient is about her age. So they were bantering back and forth. She's been taking care of him for a while. But because I really listened deeply I got such a better insight into what she does at work and the relationship she has with her patient and what she gets out of that relationship, the, the, the gifts that she gives, that he gives her, um, yeah. the insights that he shares with her. And she's very intuitive, an amazing person. She, she does this way more than I do it. And, and she's quieter and listens more and remembers a lot more, too. <laughs> I, need to, I need to be more like her. Yeah. But, but thank God I was quiet. So I think there's a lesson in that, too. We're always so quick to want to finish the conversation. We're so mm. quick to want to diagnose who some, oh, you know, he's a Republican. I can tell by the way he talks. Or he's a liberal because of, you know, the way he looks. Or, or she's, you know, she doesn't like artwork. She's, I mean, we, we have these, these narratives in our heads sometimes, and it just really cuts us off from seeing the humanity of another person. And then we're, we miss out on on who they really are and the gifts they may have for us. But if we could just learn to listen more, think how much more that would enrich us. We don't have to agree with them on everything that they believe in, but if we listen more, I think that would enrich us. We'd learn more. We might catch a kernel here of truth or of wisdom from them that can inform our own lives. Yeah. I mean, I think that to me that relates to a feeling that I have often of just wanting to be humble. Like, 
and not assume that I know anything, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Like, just be a humble student of life, you know? I, I think the older I get, the more I, I realize I don't know very much, you know? It's like, I, I think yeah, I know a lot. Exactly. And no, I really don't. <laughs> I, and I meet people that are so smart and have figured things out. And I know we're all on the same journey, aren't we? You know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Um, maybe we could talk a little bit about, um, something I read that you wrote about emotional maturity, Mm. learning that. I mean, I think this is obviously all connected and in your article that you were writing about emotional maturity, you said that it, you know, it it definitely can be learned and you list five, uh, suggestions, self-development, see problems as opportunities, delay gratification, develop empathy and be teachable. I was wondering if you could elaborate on your whole kind of philosophy about emotional maturity at all. Sure. So many people may have heard emotional intelligence. There's a book about that and somewhat similar. But one of the number one things I looked for when I was hiring new police officers and dispatchers, I would get a huge packet with their background and everything about them. They have to go through so many hoops to get hired now from lie detector tests to psychology exam, all this stuff. But in the end, I have to make the decision about hiring somebody. And I also did a chief's interview with candidates that would make it all the way to the chief's interview. And I would use that to help my decision. But one of the number one things I look for was emotional maturity. That and and integrity were the two top, top two things I look for. When yeah. I look for emotional maturity, what I was looking for is a, is, a, is a person who doesn't take themselves too seriously, um, who's teachable, who takes um, um, responsibility for their behavior. I would see so many people, Scott, you know, in, in, in my profession and the other professions, too, who were emotionally immature. Here's an example. Uh, uh, somebody competes for a, promo- a job promotion exam. You're going against another another gal, and, and the gal gets it, and you don't, and you're just angry. You know, I should have gotten it. That they, why did they, why did they pick her? She doesn't have the same skills that I have. So you know what? You're gonna you're gonna punish your boss for that. You're, you're gonna slow down at work. You're not gonna go to her promotional party because you know they picked the wrong person. You've been there longer. You should have gotten it. That's being emotionally immature. Um, yeah. That's that's um, being jealous. That's being petty. That's. Or maybe your boss, and I dealt with these things. I'd make decisions that weren't popular at work. You know, we're going to do this at work now, or we're going to change our, our patrol schedule route, or you're going to go on this shift instead of this shift. I had, you know, some officers that would, you know, pout and they wouldn't like it, and, and they, they, they gossip to other people about it and say, the chief, you know, he's an idiot. Why would he put me on this shift? You know, emotional immaturity. Um, so I look very hard for people that I felt had maturity emotionally. They, they could handle disappointments. My dad used to teach me that. He'd say, John... You know, you're, there's going to be things in life you're not going to like. And I think I mentioned in that article about how when I was a kid, a best friend of mine didn't invite me to a birthday yeah. party one year. He went, he took his other friend that, that came later than me that he met in school. Yeah. How dare he? You know, and, he, and he invited him to a carnival. Now, I don't know the details. Maybe his friend's the one that had the tickets and said, hey, I want to take you to this carnival. You know, I only got two tickets. It's all I can afford. Yeah. Who knows? But I was so hurt. And I, I remember telling my dad, I said, I'm not going to invite him to my birthday then. You know, the heck with him. And my dad, you know, he's like, John, don't be petty. Don't be a child. You know, you're going to invite him to your birthday party. He's your best friend. You don't know why, you know, you didn't get to go to this. Maybe he only had two tickets, but let it go. It's not important. Be the bigger person. Be an right. adult. You know, step up. Stop whining and sniveling. Um, don't be a whiner. So, of course, be I, a victim. You know, or be a victim. Vi- victim mentality. Right. Take know. the high, my dad used to take the moral high ground, which doesn't mean be uppity and be better than other people. He meant, you know, do, be, the, do, be the bigger person. Forgive mm-hmm. more. 
Um, so emotional maturity, I think, is all of that. It's it's learning to move around obstacles in your life. Don't spend twenty. Don't spend days complaining to your wife or your husband or your best friends about how oh my gosh, this is so unfair. I should have been promoted. I should. This is not right. You know, nobody want. First of all, nobody really wants to listen to it. They don't. They don't want to hear the yeah. sniveling. Now, some people love to fuel it. There's always other. People in the galley who like to watch, you know, people complain and yeah, they, oh yeah, tell me more, Scott. Tell me how you got screwed at work, you know. And yeah. so there's always people that will they'll buy into your own complaining. But is that really moving you forward? No. Yeah. You know. So being well, you say see see problems as opportunities. That's well, that's you know, the better way to do it. It's true. I, I didn't get. I was a resident assistant in college. And I, I had a free room and board. Dorm room was great, you know. And I had to put on events and all that. And it was a great job. Um, but toward the end of my first year of being a resident assistant, uh, my friend who was my boss, he said, um, hey, John, uh, you and one other resident assistant, we're not going to renew your contract next year. Um, you know, you did a good job starting off, but we feel like your, your passion's not really there anymore. I was hurt. Um, but mm-hmm. you know what? He was absolutely right. The passion wasn't there. It's not what I wanted to do. And I looked at that as an opportunity. What am I going to do with my senior year? Because it was junior year that I was a resident assistant. So my senior year, I got a shared dorm room with another guy. I ended up getting involved in student government, started drawing cartoons for the local um, uh, campus newspaper, had one of the best years ever, developed artistically more, grew more, because yeah. I was free from this job I had before that I wasn't really passionate about. Um, I was th- so thankfully, I saw it as an opportunity to change instead of being all upset about it. It stung, but I got over it quick. And I think that's that's the lesson is that, you know, bad things happen in our lives. Sometimes uh, where's the opportunity in it? It doesn't mean that the bad thing wasn't bad. Some things are really bad, a divorce, uh, a loss of a, someone you love. Um, but what are you going to do with that now? And what would the loved one want, want you to do with that? My dad often talked about that. The people we love and lose, what would they want us to do with our lives now that they're gone? Would they want us to mope around and be sad and de- depressed and, and self-destructive? Or would they want us to honor their life by, by living on and doing the best we can with our lives? Never forgetting them, but using their example and their inspiration to be the best person we can be going forward. It was a great message that my dad shared with me about that. Yeah, that's beautiful. Yeah, it reminds me a lot of something that uh, I'll bring up Jocko again. He, Whenever he talks about the guys that he lost in Iraq, he talks about how by him living his best life every day is a way to honor their loss. You know? Yeah, that's a good way so. to put it. Right. Right. I think that's true. I think that's part of being emotionally mature. It's taking responsibility for who you are. It's honoring the people in your lives. It's, it's fulfilling your obligations. If you tell someone you're going to do something, then you do it. And if you make a mistake, then you apologize and you fix it. And you don't make excuses because no one wants to hear it anyway. And sometimes yeah. the excuses are valid excuses. Yeah, someone hit your car on the way to work and you missed that, that, that job interview. You know, it was an act of God. And, and you can make the excuse, you won't believe what happened. But nobody cares. It's like, yeah, I'm sorry that happened to you, but you, you weren't here, so someone else got the job. So how are you going to handle that disappointment? You know, maybe that's going to turn you in a different direction that's better in the long run. Um, mm-hmm. Maybe not. Sometimes bad things happen and it takes years to recover from them. But you will become a stronger person from the experience. And while no one would wish it on you, um, it does make you a stronger person if you grow from it. Yeah. It's and you also have listed, yeah, you also have listed uh, uh, delay gratification. What do you think about that? Yeah, that's As a part of emotional maturity. I think that's huge. Um, we all want, you know, we all do it, right? You know, I, I'm going to get on YouTube and spend two hours looking at cat videos when I should be painting because it's yeah. so much fun, you know, to, to go down these rabbit holes and, 
And so, but, but if you can delay that gratification, then that's discipline, isn't it? That's what Jocko talks about. If you can schedule out your day, force yourself to pursue the things that are most important to you, then you can reward yourself later with those YouTube videos or whatever the silliness is you want to do later. Um, that's personal discipline. I think building habits and schedules helps um, because if you can set up a routine for yourself, particularly right now where all of us are at home or a lot of us are, um, you know, this is a great time to, to build, a, build a routine. Don't just yeah. kind of limp through your day and think, I'll go do this now. And maybe I'll, what do I feel like doing now? You know, and then at the end of the day, you're angry because why didn't I paint or why didn't I finish that book I'm working on? But boy, if you just tell yourself, hey, I'm opening up my iPhone, my calendar, I'm putting a reminder in, 9 o'clock this morning, bam, I'm in my writing desk and I'm writing. And I'm going to be there until noon, I'll break for lunch, then I'll take a walk, and at 2 o'clock I'm coming back, and from 2 to 5 or 2 to 6, I'm writing. Wow. Yeah, even if you don't feel like it, because you know what, inspiration you know, doesn't always come. It, it right. happens when you're doing the work. So, And it's amazing, though, how if you force yourself to that schedule, you'll start, the work will happen. It may be a slow start. Some days may be better than others, but you will achieve way more than if you just leave it to chance. Um, I think that's part of um, you know delaying gratification, and then you can reward yourself later with that with that break or with that evening movie or whatever it is you want to do. But it's so fulfilling when you get scheduled and you get disciplined and you actually start achieving the work and you start seeing the fruits of it, and it, and it, and it builds. It's cumulative. You know, the first couple of days of me taking a, a figure drawing course, well, you know, the drawings weren't spectacular. But gosh, you know, the more I keep at it, I'm seeing development. I'm seeing growth. And it's hard. I'd rather go out and do fun stuff, you know, or do stuff I'm good at. But yeah. <laughs> I know the reward comes later, just like working out. If you work out every day, a little bit every day, James Clear writes about this a lot in his book, Atom- Atomic Habits, and on his blog. You know, it, it builds over time. It's that, that, that you're investing in yourself every day a little bit. Because you're disciplined, and all of a sudden a year goes by, and all those push-ups and sit-ups you're doing and working out, look at you. You know you're not the same guy you were, or the same gal you were a year ago. You look great. You know it's because you've you've made that a habit, you've made that a routine, you've delayed gratification. All the things that have been really valuable to me in my life, I think a lot of it had to do with delayed gratification, putting off the fun stuff and doing the hard work. It's how I got going to college, I got my degrees. It's how I achieved at work and studied for promotional exams. And it probably is true for a lot of other people, too. Yeah, yeah. There's a couple things that came to mind when you were talking. There's a book that I've been reading by Mason Curry called Daily Rituals of Artists. And uh, there's a definitely a theme. through. I mean, these are like super famous artists and writers, and they all – Almost all of them have like a very strict schedule every day, the way right. they I write from this time to this time, and then I have lunch, and then this and that. But it also, what you were saying, made me think of um, a podcast. I can't remember which podcast it was, but the gentleman in the podcast was talking about how Let's say if he's doing a workout, he's not doing the workout for him right now. He's doing the workout for him five years from now, yeah. you know, because yeah. it's like you're investing in your future self. And, yeah, exactly. Uh, Imagine yourself, you know, a couple of years from now, who, who do you want that person to be? Right. You know, it's yeah. I mean, we, we, we lose that in the day to day minutia. But um, if you have that goal in mind and it, it pays to write it down, write down, here's my goal. You know, here's my, my one year, five year. I'm not a huge list person, and some people do that. I kind of, I'm more into a kind of routine. I try to set a routine, and then my work moves forward from there. But I do think it helps to visualize who you want to be, where do you want to go, what kind of work do you want to do, um, and then, and once you have that in your mind, you work towards that. You set up habits and routines to get you there. 
And, you know, I mean, I learn from other people too. I think you need to make time for online and other, to read books and to learn how other people achieve their success um, and, and then work towards that. But yeah, discipline, emotional maturity, all those things are a huge part in uh, getting where you want to go. Yeah. Um, there's a couple of different directions we could go. Uh, just notes that I have from things that I've read of, uh, that you've written. We could talk about the, uh, the prison wisdom, the five strategies. We could talk about joy. We could talk about the magic of proximity, living a simple life, happiness. Any of those things strike you? Well, actually, one of the more obscure ones probably is the uh, proximity. You know, when I was writing about proximity, I was writing about how you set up things around you if influences your, your life. You know, where you live, where you put your utensils in the kitchen, where your tools are for your artwork or your writing in your house. Um, proximity dovetails into another topic, too, which I write about quite a bit, which is minimalism and simplicity. Yeah. Um, so maybe that's a, an area that might be of value to your to your listeners. Right now, minimalism is sort of the the in thing. A lot of people are writing about it um, and simplicity. But I have to say that that has had a, a, a lot of value for me. When I first discovered mm. minimalism, I think I was reading Joshua Becker on Becoming Minimalists, and I learned about theminimalist.com, uh, um, these two other fellows who uh, kind of left corporate life and, and moved off into Montana somewhere in a cabin and started living a simpler life. And and um, it made me think about how I was living my life and clutter and, and, and how I wanted to configure my life. And um, what I realized was simplicity is such a wonderful way to become more efficient at achieving your dreams and, and becoming a better artist. Uh, I started reorganizing my studio. I used to have like 12 different pushod boxes or paint boxes. Um, I just love paint boxes and I go online and buy new ones and I build my own and I modify yeah. them and I put, I mean, it was just ridiculous. I mean, my wife would shake her head and say, yeah, you're becoming a professional paint box maker, but why don't you actually do a painting, you know, <laughs> uh, you know, and, it, and you, a lot of artists are like this, right? We get all wrapped up. We nerd out in the tools. Oh, I want to get this yeah. new painting knife. Oh, have you seen those, those rosemary brushes are the bomb, you know? And, and so we, we get so wrapped up in the tools and, and getting everything just right. And then we never paint. I know when right. I, I was at a workshop with Scott Christensen, he took us out on location. He said, okay, everybody, we're going to be out here. We're going to paint the scene right here at the India, uh, Indian River. And, okay, so we're all busy painting. We're getting ready to paint. I'm still setting up my boxes. Okay, time's up. We're moving to the next location. He gave us like 30 minutes. I said, are you crazy? 30 minutes? I can't even get my stuff set up. He says, no, you have to learn how to move faster and stop trying to make a pretty painting. Just do a quick sketch. Try to capture just the essential of the scene. And he made us go from scene, from site to site to site. Well, we got faster and faster because we knew we only had 30 minutes and we had to leave again. And all of a sudden, I started thinking about how do I want to set up my gear and my, my – I don't need this big French easel. You know, I moved to these little paint boxes and I moved to smaller little canvas boards because I could paint faster. And I got way more simplified and organized in how my equipment – just a few brushes. I had everything set up just so, so I could open it up, put it on a tripod and go. Same thing with mm. my studio. I made sure I had my palette was foldable so I could open it up and the paints were already in it, already wet, already ready to go. I could just paint. The proximity of everything was near at hand. One drawer with the brushes in it, my, my solvents right there in the same place every day. I set up my palette the same way every day. Limited palette with three colors and white. Knew where they were um, so I didn't have to do think about it. Simplified. Minimized. Then I started looking at my, my overall studio. What things do I not need in my studio anymore? I'm going to get rid of this stuff. Then that dovetailed into my clothing. God, I'm in the morning going through this shirt, that pair of pants. What do I want to wear? 
Well, simplified that. I donated a ton of stuff to the Goodwill. I, I pared down my, my clothing to a few essential things I could wear every day. People don't really notice what you wear anyway. Um, so simplifying and adopting minimalism has helped me a great deal. Um, I just don't like clutter. My life's simpler when I have less stuff. Now I'm working on trying to simplify like apps on my phone and on my computer. And I just, oh, mm. I'm always trying to simplify down. My, my website, simplified that down. I can't stand websites with pop-ups and a million bells and whistles. I want to just get to the heart of why I'm there for the writing, the artwork, the yeah. poetry, whatever it is. So, you know, I've got one sign-up page on my website. I probably violate all the rules of, you know, how to build a list fast. But I don't right. care because <laughs> I want my readers to go to a website that's simple. There's, there's an image on the front page. You can an about page. You can look at the artwork. You can read my writing. You can sign up if you want to. Buy my book. Simple. Um, and I just find that my brain breathes when I don't have a lot of clutter all the time. Yeah. And I think for a lot of artists, no, that's me. Um, there's a guy down in Texas um, who, David Arms is his name, and he, he has hmm. an amazing um, gift shop, and he's an artist. He, he has an, uh, a... a, a a studio filled with stuff from all over the world that he's collected. And it's beautiful. And I could spend an hour just walking through his studio and looking at everything. It's amazing. That works for him. I mean, he has all this stuff. It, it inspires him. Jeremy Mann, the artist I mentioned before, he, his studio is just, just, just cluttered with a million drawings and stuff everywhere. So I'm not saying that minimalism and simplicity is the right formula for everybody. Some people are very creative by having lots of stuff. But it's worked for me. But I do think you got to simplify your life in the sense that you got to hone in on like how do you do your work every day, you know whether you have a cluttered studio or not doesn't matter. But you got to have a schedule and you got to simplify your life so that that's the focus. Otherwise, you're going to be nibbled to death by other commitments and responsibilities and distractions. And so proximity of how close things are to you, like the fruit. I think in that article I wrote that you know having a fruit bowl right there, yeah. on the, and you're going to eat more fruit, right? Same thing with the chips. If you put the chips right there in the cabinet where you can reach them, you're going to eat them every day. So how you set up your life around you, how you organize your life, has a great impact on on your productivity, on your art, and on your success. Yeah, I agree. And even just how you approach your life in a simpler way by kind of really prioritizing what's important. Yes. You know? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I found um, that that for me, simplifying, you know, I, I just say no to more things now than I used to. I've had opportunities to do online work and illustration work, and I'm very blessed that people ask me, and I very graciously thank them, but tell them, no, I, you know, I can't achieve and move forward with my own creative work if I take on other projects. However fulfilling and, and valuable they may be, then I'm not, I'm not getting my work done. And so I've had to say no because um, I'm at a place where I want to I want to grow more as an artist. I want to deepen my own vision of my own art. And so you know you got to learn how to say no. Yeah, yeah. I feel like I've been saying no. I mean, it's been easier in a way too because no one really expects you to do anything right now. <laughs> yeah, know? that's true. Right now is a good chance for people to <clears throat> to truly uh, you know dive into their creativity more if they can. Yeah, but I've, I've I guess with the slowness that I've had, I've found. Um, more of a an approach to uh, being more aware of my thoughts and being aware of, <clears throat> excuse me, how I react and um, and just you know, I think it's been very helpful for me. To, like if you're trying to make a decision, like should I do this or not this or that or whatever, should I accept this job or should I, what should I do today or how should I, why do I feel resistance about? disciplining myself around this certain area in my life just i just 
I feel like it just helps to ask questions. You know, you just stop yeah. and you just start asking yourself questions like, why do I have resistance to adding this thing into my routine that takes some discipline? You know, and you just have to think about it and like try to dig down and as far as you can go to figure out like what is at the core of this until you can kind of get to like, oh, this is because I had the resistance to this because of something this person said or this experience or I have this way of thinking about this that's limited, that's not accurate, you know? Yeah, Stephen Pressfield writes about that, about this notion of resistance, you know, and how that can be the enemy. It can, you know, you resist doing the work or getting to what you need to do. But there is a flip side to resistance. Resistance can be instructive because it might Mm. be telling you something. It might be telling you that maybe this isn't what really matters to you. Maybe this really isn't what you should be doing. Or maybe this isn't um, what you... Sometimes we fall in love with the idea of something, but not the actual you know, execution of it. Some people say, I want to be a poet. Oh, I love poetry and I love reading it. But they, they never write any poetry. They read a lot of it or, you know, they talk to the people about it. I'm a poet, but no, they're on social media talking about poetry and they're collecting poetry and they got a Pinterest page full of poems, but they're not writing any poetry because maybe they don't really want to be a poet. Maybe they thought they did, mm. but that resistance is that they, they love poetry, just like some people love fine art, but they don't really have the discipline or the will or the deep, true desire to study art to become an artist themselves. Maybe their passion is, is collecting art. Uh, so you do have to look at your resistance and ask yourself that sometimes with, why, why am I resisting so much? Now, it might just be laziness. We all have that. Sometimes it's just, I'm just not in the mood right now to paint or write. Um, that's where the habits and routines come in. But I do think, you know, slowing down and listening to yourself and maybe during this time when we're all quarantined, when we can take those walks and listen to our hearts more, is a good chance to um, ask yourself, what really is important to me? What yeah. quickens my heart? What do I love doing? I would do whether I got paid for it or not. And, you know, and maybe the other stuff you're finding resistance to is because it's not really what that's not your true passion. Maybe that's not what you really want to do. Sometimes that's a hard lesson for people. Maybe they've been studying the guitar for years and they want to be a guitarist and it finally hits them that, yeah, I don't want to really be a guitarist. You know, I don't, I don't, you know, why am I? And then you feel like, oh, I wasted all this time. I also think that nothing is ever wasted. You know, when we spend time on any kind of discipline, whether it's art or work, um, you learn things from it. You learn things that you didn't know before and that can inform the next journey you go on. Yeah. So that's what I think about that. Yeah, yeah. And I, that makes me think of just what you've written about also, just the importance of joy and laughter. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Boy, we could use a lot of that right now, huh? You yeah. know, I mean, I, as I look around, uh, when I do pick up the news at night or read the paper and I see people banging pots and singing in Italy when they've been just just overrun with this terrible you know, virus, I see that human spirit of people cheering and, and, and fire trucks outside the hospitals cheering the doctors and nurses and mm-hmm. people outside the grocery store applauding when the uh, when the trucker drives up with uh, the toilet paper, you know, and, yeah. and our food. Thank God for these people. But, you know, um, uh, it's the joy of life. We all want to have a good life and we appreciate people that are helping us to to, to live it, even during these difficult times. Um you know, that's something we all share. We all want to have a good life. Yeah. Yeah, I don't want to keep you too much longer. I just wanted to talk about a few more things. I had this question come up around your choice to retire early and move to Nevada. Like, mm-hmm. 
and change and options? Like, what do you say to someone who feels stuck and that they don't have options, you know? Uh, you always have options. You know, I, I remember years ago studying with Scott Christensen, and I was telling him, oh, gosh, I wish I could be like you and just be painting every day in my studio. And he said, he looked at me and he said, well, why not, John? I'm like, well, because I have responsibilities. I have a job. I have a son, my wife. You know, I can't just up and he's like, you always have options. You know, do you have to live in California? Could you live somewhere more affordable? Or, you know, could you make a transition plan? I mean, and it, you know, it stayed with me. Now, I ended up enjoying my career enough in law enforcement that I, I didn't feel like I had to get out of it. I didn't hate it. I understand some yeah. people really hate their job. And, but you always have options. Um, yes, we moved. I, I intentionally retired early. I could have maximized my pension and had a higher pension if I'd worked five more years. Um, mm. And it would have meant quite a bit more money and uh, five more years and, and then retire. But I decided to go out the door at 52. It was a good time in my life where the police department was running well. I had good people working with me. And I really didn't want to wait any longer to um, dive into my creative life. So I came mm. up with a plan. I talked about it with my wife. She was a nurse. She worked part-time. My son was still in school. But we had planned well. And, and we knew that we could make a transition. So we looked around. We had friends that lived in southern Nevada here near Vegas. The homes are cheaper here. Um, it's a little bit hotter here in the summer than in where I lived in California. We lived near the coast in California, a beautiful area, but also incredibly expensive. I mean, condos in the town I lived in were going for like $700,000 and up. It was ridiculous. And so we, we sold our home after I retired in California. We moved here to Southern Vegas with some other friends that live in the same area. We got a, a beautiful home here. We got more of a house than we had in California because it's more affordable here with a pool and a hot tub. It's just beautiful. But they have no state income tax here. So it was just more affordable for us to move here and have me transition into uh, a full-time life as a writer and an artist. And I had, I had a police, police pension that I knew I could survive on, but I didn't know whether I'd make any money writing or painting. I thought, well, if I do, great. But I was at a point, and I was fortunate enough to be at a point where I could do it full-time. And if I didn't make money, fine, I still had a pension. But I could have done it earlier in my career. Looking back now, I realized I wasn't tied down. I could have very easily have transitioned. could have moved to Idaho where Scott Christensen lived, where homes were way more affordable. I could have taken a part-time job and started painting full-time and really accelerated my art career. Where there's a will, there's a way. There's just sacrifices you have to make to get there. And you also have to decide if it's fair to the family because it isn't just your decision if you have children, if you have a spouse. You ha yeah. Everyone has to be on board and discuss it um, on how we're going to make this transition. But... People do it all the time. People move all the time. They make changes all the time. Um, and you know what? It's totally doable, and you can change your life. Maybe it's a lateral move from one job as an engineer to another job as an engineer that, with the company you like better. Um, maybe it's, it's taking a part-time job that brings in the bills, and maybe your spouse works a little bit more so you can start painting full-time. You have to have a plan, though. You can't just do it and say, I'm going to go self-actualize and become a poet, or you're probably going to starve, and your, your wife's going to be very mad at you. you know? I mean, so you have to be smart about it. You have to plan. It may take a year in advance planning, maybe longer, but you can come up with a plan. You can set up things to make that transition, to make a move, um, to take a different job. People do it every day, and sometimes they do it because... And a lot of people right now are going to be forced into it, aren't they, with layoffs and all that. Some people are suddenly out yeah. of work, and their job may never be available again. So they need to start thinking about, what's my plan? I have a good friend who worked for years in JCPenney, and he's right now he's out on, you know, out of work until they reopen. Well, I've been reading on the papers about you know, JCPenney may never reopen. They were already mm. going through a structural deficit and looking at how they're going to regroup and, and looking at bankruptcy. And 
They may never come back. And I called them up and said, you know, have you looked at Amazon? You know, um, Amazon's hiring like crazy right now. Um, so this is this may be a, a chance to pivot and go in a different direction. And it may end up being a better opportunity for you. It may lead to new new opportunities. So he's looking at that. Um, so it's just a matter yeah. of looking at your options, doing your homework, researching. Do you have to live where you're living right now? Or is there another place you could live? Uh, years ago, I, I would never have thought of leaving California. I love California where I lived. I, where I was born and raised, love that area. I go back frequently. I'm only an eight-hour drive away. But guess what? I love where I live now. I have new friends here. I have new places to go. Um, well, they're closed right now, but they'll eventually open up again. Yeah. But I mean, I, I found you can. it's amazing how much you can change your life and go somewhere else and, and reinvent yourself. You just have to be smart about it. You have to plan and you have to make sure your family's on board. Yeah. And did you have fear? I, I'm yeah. sure. Yeah, I did. I, I think it was a little easier for me because I retired with a pension. So I already had, you know, I still had an income. I still had medical benefits. So I, I, I was in a good position in that respect. But um, there was still fear. You know, I was leaving the town where um, I spent 26 years of my career. I knew everybody and everybody knew me. I was very comfortable there. Um, and, you know, I had a lot of great connections there. I had my, my doctor I had for years there. I, I knew everyone in the schools, the banks. Um, everybody knew me. I was a retired police chief. Um, they wanted me to sit on boards and be involved and do things. So I had a life there. So to make a decision to completely turn and then move somewhere that was totally new, where I knew very few people and was it's like starting over, it was a little scary. Um, yeah. But... Um, well, now I don't regret it at all. We moved my mother here. She has a better assisted living care here than she had where we were before. It's more affordable. Mm. She loves it. Um, we we have new experiences. Um, I've been able to explore Red Rock out here and go up into uh, the mountains out here. Um, it's just been it's been a it's been a great experience. And I still go back to California. I go back and forth because I go painting. And so yeah. it's possible. Any of your listeners out there that may be suddenly out of work or in a point of transition or they've been thinking about it. Um, it's totally possible to change your life um, and to have a whole different life and a better life. And sometimes it takes um, sacrifices, maybe adopting a minimalist mindset. Maybe you don't need that BMW so bad after all. Maybe a used car is all you really need to get around. Maybe you don't need that expensive wardrobe. Maybe you don't need that big house you thought you needed. I mean, you know, actually some of the, some of the happiest years I had in California was when my wife and I were in a condo. We had a really nice condo with a little view of the woods and it was simple. We could lock it up and travel. And when we moved into a bigger house, it came with bigger responsibilities and things that needed to be fixed and more expenses and more headaches. And I kind of missed that little condo. We were really happy there. You know, we, my wife yeah. and I now talk about, like, we have a nice home here right now. My son's still with us. Um, but when he moves out, when he finishes his, his uh, degree in computer science, down the road, you know, we have a pool and all that. But, you know, the pool's expensive and we don't use it that much. And we're kind of realizing that, yeah, we'll probably probably move into a smaller place later on, maybe a smaller house, because we don't need nice. that much. And we'd much rather have freedom to travel and not have to have expenses. So it's all that's where minimalism comes in, too, is you don't need that much. You know, Put your money into your passions, into your health, into travel. You'll be much more fulfilled than you know, keeping up with the Joneses and worrying about, oh, I have to have a, a Ford Raptor because Joe's got a Ford Raptor or... You know, I right. need to show off. Nobody really cares. You know, they have all the headaches. You know, they're all mortgaged to the hilt. And why have those headaches? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I, I think this kind of reminds me of uh, one of the quotes you had in one of your early stories in your book from Hugh Laurie, where oh, he yeah. says, it's a terrible thing, I think, to wait in a life to wait until you're ready. Yeah. I have this feeling now that 
actually no one is ever ready to do anything. There's almost no such thing as ready. There's only now, and you may as well do it now. Yeah, you got to love Hugh Laurie. You know, he's a great pianist. A lot of people know him from House and from being an actor. But that guy is an accomplished pianist. He's he's recorded albums and really amazing. You know, I mean, he could have gone in that direction too, probably as an artist and, and been a been a great pianist. But yeah, now is all we really have too, isn't it? We don't know what tomorrow is going to bring. Tomorrow you get run over by a turnip truck, or your life could change. So why? And then you think, why should I put off things? I think this pandemic yeah. is making a lot of people think about what's really important. Why was sure. I worried about you know this thing or that thing or you know, I mean, I, I keep coming back to, I think what's really important is your health, your family, and your passions, you know, and then making mm-hmm. enough of an income that you can have a life and, you know, have some security. We all need that. Um, but gosh, life's too short to, to chase uh, unnecessary dreams or, 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 or vanity. Um, you know, chase the things that really matter, you know, your, yeah. your health, your art, um, good times with your family, creating memories instead of creating more things. I'm not. I'm not against material. I'm not against having nice things and and having a nice home if that's what you want. There's, there's a lot of fulfillment in that and security in that. But sometimes I think we miss the point that what, what do you do now? You have this nice house. You made a lot of money. Now what? It's like that quote I shared in one of my articles from uh, Jim Carrey. You know, it's, you know, I wish more people yeah. could get famous and rich and find out that it's not the answer. You know, and I met a lot of people in my police career that were multimillionaires. We lived, we had a nice community where I policed in, and we went to their houses a lot. And there was addiction, there was divorce, there was cheating, there was alcohol problems, there was unhappiness. I mean, and they had everything: huge home, multiple cars, boats. Um, and some of these people were very wealthy and just miserable. Now, I met some wealthy people that were also very happy, wonderful people who were very well-adjusted and deserved everything they had, and they had very good lives. So it's not that you can't be wealthy and also be happy, but but money alone isn't the answer. It, it, it's more. Even the people I knew that were wealthy and very happy told me that, no, it's not the money. It's it's my health. It's it's my family. It's that I'm able to pursue the things I love that, that yeah. make and help other people. And that was a common theme I saw with a lot of people in my career, in my life, that are happy, is that they, they tend to give back. They tend to don't just think about themselves. Um, that's a pretty your, – your universe gets small very quickly if, it, if you're at the center of it. Um, but if you think about your family and others and how you can inspire other people, either with your artwork, with your writing, with your music, your poetry, your paintings, um, if you move other people, then, then I think you're doing something that really, really matters. And it's something that's going to fulfill you because you're helping other people. You're inspiring them or helping them to grow. And then they may help other people. And what a legacy that is, isn't it? I mean, you know, we're, none of us yeah. live forever, but, and we may never be famous. I mean, Abraham Lincoln's mother, nobody remembers her. They visit his, his grave and all that. But, you know, Mary Todd, I mean, was a stepmom who really took in Abe as, as her own son. And she inspired him and she put everything into him, his love of reading and books. Her legacy is part of his legacy, I think, even though she's not yeah. well remembered. But if it wasn't for her, would we have had an Abraham Lincoln? Um, so I think that, you know, in ways we can't know, the artwork you put out there, the writing may inspire people and help people to live a better life, to treat their children better, to appreciate their spouses more, um, to appreciate beauty in life more. And isn't that the ultimate I guess gift of being an artist is to know that you're you're perpetuating beauty in the world and helping other people, and you'll pass on, but you don't even know who, who you've helped. The little boy whose father was more tender to him because he appreciated the article you wrote, 
or you know the little girl who decided she is going to become a dancer because she saw your, your your YouTube video of you dancing and what an amazing ballerina you are, you know, or the poet who you know who the, the, the farmer who read poetry. I remember a, a farmer. I read about a farmer once who was so moved by da- David Odrasik, Five for Fighting. He was a musician and a singer, and he wrote this song, a yeah. hundred years old. It was so moving. And this guy is a farmer. And he's listening to this song from this musician in New York or wherever he lives, you know, that, that inspired him. He's like, I was in tears in my concubine listening to your song about life, about when I was 15 years old and the world, I had the world as my future. And no, now I'm 45 and the sea is rising. And now I'm 85 and, you know, now I'm 100 years old. I'm just happy to be breathing. But this farmer was moved by a musician and his singing from another state, another time. And I think that's the power of art is how we can touch other people and make people's lives better. Yeah, I think we should really take seriously the power that we have to affect other people. We should take it very seriously every day. And we can either increase good things in the world and happiness, or we can, you know, create more suffering, I guess. It's all, it's our choice, right? It's true. Now, I know art encompasses many things. There's social commentary. Some people do very nihilistic art There's that, that wants to tear down and... and um, that art doesn't appeal to me as much. I, I like artwork that, that tries to uplift people. I know there can be a place for that sometimes in social commentary and politics, and that's fine. Yeah. Sometimes there's a need for that in order to call out injustices. So I see that too. So art can be more than just about beauty and uplifting people. Sometimes it can be shaking people and getting them to see things that need to change. But I think whatever your art is, um, I think you, you need to um, value it. You need to embrace it. You need to take it seriously as a responsibility um, to yourself first to feed your own soul and then also to inspire other people. You know, I wrote another article once about about a woman who found an old painting in the, the, the room she moved into that the guy died in that, that he was yeah. an artist and he did this little painting, you know, and, and, and it inspired her. You never know. You never know how your work is going to inspire somebody. And it doesn't have to be – you don't have to be some famous artist that's in all the art magazines – I mean, I see people that go to the Goodwill and look at a painting, a little, you know, oh, I like this. This would be nice in my, my studio. And they, and they buy it, some unknown uh, amateur weekend painter whose floral painting is now sitting in someone's studio and bringing them pleasure. Well, that's meaningful. That's purposeful. That's valuable. So uh, art matters. Whether, you know, that's why people put their kids' art up on their refrigerators, you know, because it's charming. And it's, it's a little bit of their soul that they're sharing with you and their artwork. It's so important. People in Alzheimer's clinics that... You know, they don't remember who they are anymore, but you put up paints in front of them and they'll, they start painting trees and skies. And there's a piece of them that's still in there that needs to express beauty. Um, and to me, that, that, that hints at that something divine, something that, that is ephemeral that maybe we don't understand, but is so valuable and important. Yeah. And um, that's something that drives me and that gives me hope. Well, thank you, John, for living an artful life and for sharing it with all of us and uh, really appreciate everything you do. Well, thank you for allowing me to be on your show and speak to your listeners uh, in Texas. Um, I've been down there, yeah. beautiful state. I um, hope to go back sometime. And um, I just encourage all of your listeners to keep producing your art and uh, let's all get through this together and help each other. Yeah. And where would you like people to find you, uh, your work online? Oh, they can. If they want to check you out more. They can check me out at johnbweiss.com. Uh, that's okay. where uh, that's where my little world exists, and um, I, I write on there and share my work on there. And I'm happy to have them come visit. 
Very good. And uh, they should definitely, I think, read your book, An Artful Life, too. I'd really, I've really been enjoying it. I've been reading like one chapter every morning, and it's oh. really a nice way to start the day. Well, thank you for that. I'm glad that you're, you're finding some value in it. I enjoyed writing it. <laughs> cool. Well, thanks, John. Thanks for your time so much. All right. Thank you, too. I appreciate it, Scott. Thanks for listening. One more thing before you go. If this episode or any other I've produced have helped you or added value to your life, please support the podcast so it can continue and grow. Just go to austinarttalk.com forward slash support. There you can find a link to my Patreon page, and there is also a PayPal option and an Amazon affiliate link. I couldn't keep doing this without your help. All the best to you and take care.